Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Well, good morning, Harvest. How y'all doing this morning? So good to be in fellowship with all of you. So glad to be uh, opening up the book of Isaiah again, as we have been in for uh, longer than I've been here. So um, excited to, to be studying this book. You know, over the past few weeks, our time in the book of Isaiah has invited us to consider uh, some pretty incredible things about God and his works in the world. Uh, I was actually, uh, Pastor Peter and I were joking the other day that uh, there, there's some really there's some really hard things to be going through week in week out studying the book of Isaiah. I was like, well, at least we get to be in the good part. Like this is like the fun part to be in. So I'm, I mean, the, the past few weeks have just been uh, a blessing to me. I hope that they've blessed you. Um, three weeks ago, we we looked at God's master plan for redemption. We learned that salvation will come. In unexpected ways. Salvation comes through suffering. Jesus will be crowned with thorns, that he'll be exalted on a cross. But what looks like defeat will actually give way to victory. Two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Michael invited us to consider doing great things for God because God has done great things for us. See, God wants us to leverage our lives to seek first his kingdom. He doesn't want us to just be moved. He wants us to take risks for the sake of seeing his gospel advance. And then last week, we considered this great invitation of God. Do you remember this? He wants you to come. He's inviting you to come, to enter in. He wants you to enter his rest. And we consider what what compels God to invite us, us, in the first place? It's the surprising ways of God. God actually responds to our sinfulness by moving toward us with compassion. We said where our sins add up, his forgiveness multiplies. And now this morning, we turn our attention to Isaiah chapter 56. And the question Isaiah 56 asks is this, what kind of community does the gospel create? What kind of community does the gospel create? What happens when people are changed by the cross of Christ? What happens when they accept the invitation of God's forgiveness through repentance and faith? God says that his plans will succeed. So we we need to be paying attention. What God is doing should not be on the peripheries of our lives. They should be front and center. So what should we expect God's success to look like? What does a movement of the gospel create? What happens when God changes our hearts? Isaiah tells us it creates a new kind of community marked by love and service to God and to each other. 
marked by love and service to God and to each other. When I was in high school, I was recruited by some friends to, to join our, our school's tennis team. I never played before, so it wasn't like I was a, like a good player. It was, just, uh, just, it was just a fun thing to do. I mean, their, their pitch was, it's good fitness for the offseason because I, I played a different sport, and everyone makes the team. So I thought, you know what? That's good enough for me. You know, there's free, free snacks involved. Yeah, sign me up. Well, after a year of playing, the tennis coaches actually saw a lot of potential in me. Uh, I had picked up some of the, the basic mechanics. I had good footwork, great hustle. I was becoming more of a consistent player. So at the end of the season, my, my coaches actually came to talk to me. <clears throat> they, they met with me and my dad, and uh, we started talking about, we, we set up this deal uh, with a local tennis trainer in the area where I would essentially do maintenance work at his tennis club in exchange for tennis lessons. Now, I'm not even sure this little working arrangement was legal, but at least we seem to share the same goals. We, we seem to be on the same page. The trainer was supposed to help me improve my serve, which in practice meant after you're done working, you can go grab a, a basket of balls and find an open court. The problem is I didn't want to be there. I was 16. I didn't want to work for this guy making no money. So I would hit through a basket of balls as quickly as I could so I could leave as fast as I could. And as you can imagine, after several months of doing this, I didn't actually get better at tennis, right? And my coaches, they noticed that too. They were a little disappointed that my off season wasn't very effective. Very effective. In fact, they, they let me know. Like, man, I really thought you were going to come back and be good. Yeah, sorry. But here's the thing. I didn't love it. So I went through the motions of what I was obligated to do, and then I moved on. But just imagine if I did love it. Imagine if I really devoted myself to it. Don't you think that would have changed things? You see, a community that is changed by the gospel, people who are changed by the gospel, they, they don't feel obligated to God. Their, their participation isn't purely out of duty. It's not just going through the motions. But they actually love God. They devote themselves to what he's doing. Do, do you understand the difference? And that subtle change of the heart that's ultimately God's doing. That's the work of his spirit in you. But that change, that changes everything. Because when you love him, you long for his success. You pray for it. You, you move toward it. You serve him because you find his kingdom compelling and beautiful. What kind of community does the gospel create? This morning, I want us to look at two practices that mark God's new covenant community from Isaiah 56. There's definitely more than this. But there's certainly not less. So first, we should be a community that lives like Christ is king. And second, we should be a community 
that practices the radical inclusivity of the gospel. First, live like Christ is king. What do I mean? Verses 1 and 2 of our passage say, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. A community that lives like Christ is king comes under his law of love, his rule of justice and righteousness. In the Old Testament, the, the idea of justice and righteousness are linked to kingship because ultimately the king would be responsible for establishing the law of the land. That's why the role of kings becomes so prominent and then so volatile. The way the leader goes, so goes the nation. Justice and righteousness, these are, these are linked with rule and reign. And so the idea of keeping justice and doing righteousness is something that Israel had ultimately failed to do. They had failed to be this way. But with the success of the cross, keeping justice and doing righteousness isn't just a command. It's not just an expectation to uphold. Now, keeping justice and doing righteousness is a promise because we have a new king in Jesus who promises to install his new government. Jesus' rule is a promise. It's a guarantee. It's begun. In fact, earlier in Isaiah, that the prophet characterizes Jesus' rule in this way. Maybe it will be familiar to you. He says in Isaiah chapter 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it. With what? With justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So for you to keep justice and do righteousness is a call for you to live like Christ is king. You do this by way of the cross. You don't enter the kingdom of God on your own merits or by your own strength. Rather, you forsake your ways and you pick up his. You learn to submit to his ways, to the ways of Christ. And what this looks like, it means you count others' needs above your own. You practice patience and forgiveness. You show honor to others. You welcome others. You bear one another's burdens. You confess your faults to one another. You pray for others. You take up the cause of those who can't fight for themselves. It's the way of Christ. It's how he lived. It's what he calls us to. 
And Jesus' government offers us no campaign slogan. I mean, he needs no elections. He doesn't promise us four years or six years or 20 years or 30 years. It says, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. So have you started setting your sights on his reign? Are you beginning to come under his rule? You know, one, one way we begin to live like Christ is king, it's, it's, it's an interesting way. It's not a way that you, you maybe you would think of, but this is what the text says. It's a, one way that you come under Christ's reign as king is through Sabbath keeping. He says you, you keep the Sabbath. Isn't, isn't that interesting? Why is that? What, what does he mean by that? Well, well, let's consider the commentary that God offers when he gives his people the command to keep the Sabbath. After rescuing Israel from their bondage in the land of Egypt, God reestablishes Israel as his people. He declares that he is the Lord their God, and then he gives them the Ten Commandments, which are recorded in Exodus and Deuteronomy. And then in giving these commands, he gives them two justifications. There's a creation principle and an exodus principle. With the creation principle, he says to keep the Sabbath day holy because in six days, Exodus says, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. And then with the Exodus principle, this, this deliverance in Deuteronomy, he says that Israel is to remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. In other words, keeping the Sabbath day holy is about enjoying God's handiwork and resting in his deliverance. It's about enjoying his handiwork and resting in his deliverance. It's an invitation one day a week to remember what God has done and to enjoy the benefits of his work. Sabbath keeping is about learning to delight in what God has called good. And it's about being grateful to God for rescuing us from sin. He delivers us. Listen to this. Rest Refreshment and enjoyment are all byproducts of Christ's salvation. You know, it says, I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Resting. Resting. Because what do you have to do? What are you going to do to save yourself? He's already done it. Sabbath keeping, it's, it's a weekly reminder that you enjoy covenant fellowship with God. And you're standing in the family. It's, it's like a child's. In practice, a, a child is not a meaningful contributor to the family, right? I mean, you, you guys, you've experienced this, right? Parents, you've, kids, you know, pardon me, for, but, but you guys, you know this, right? They're, they're not meaningful. Like, they don't help pay the bills. 
They, they don't put food on the table, right? Anybody else? Yeah, we, we experienced this. We're, t- we're in this together. But they are essential members of the family. I mean, you can't imagine life without them. You, you wouldn't want life without them. And they enjoy all the benefits of family membership. Listen, if, if you want to live like Christ is king, practice accepting your status as children in God's family. If you really want to live radically, right, once a week, every week, for the rest of your life, learn to rest like this. Practice regularly reorienting yourself back to the covenant relationship you enjoy with God in Christ. You know, the the biggest obstacle I encounter in enjoying Christ's finished work like this in my life is my ongoing struggle to quiet this inner voice that tells me, you didn't achieve enough this week. You didn't meet expectations. You don't deserve it. And it produces enough anxiety in me that that I feel this, this restlessness. It's like I can't escape it. I feel this inner need to prove myself. It's like this constant call to return or to remain in the former life. To enter back in when God is calling me out. This inner murmuring, it can be so pervasive. But the finished work of Christ is meant to be a direct affront to that inner voice of disapproval. Life with God means a a life of doing good, a life of holiness, a life of godliness, but it's not a life predicated on your achievements. You enter into this life, you enter into this rest, not by producing, but by resting in the finished work of Jesus. Your own failures are replaced with God's approval. So Sabbath-keeping means separating yourself from the anxiety of this world and living in the joys of your salvation. It calls you to practice it, to embrace it, to live within it. The world will keep calling you away from this rest. The world will tell you, you didn't do enough. Our current social environment is constantly telling us to pick up more things, to indulge in more things. And it will keep tempting you to live as though you are your own king. And that you get to decide how to spend your life. But Sabbath keeping is an expression and an act that says, what I do every week is not what holds my life together. It's a call to submit to the Lord's thoughts and ways above your own. And to enjoy the benefits of what God declares is good. To live in agreement that on the cross, when Jesus said, It is finished. He guaranteed your freedom. You are no longer a slave to sin. So you don't have to live like it. But you have been declared righteous in him. And so he says, you can live like it. When you rest, you are declaring the sufficiency of his works. A new covenant community, they live like Christ is king. Second, the radical inclusivity of the gospel. We learn to practice 
the radical inclusivity of the gospel. Now, here at Harvest, we are an international multicultural church. Has anybody noticed this? Yeah? And, and your leaders, we see that distinctive as a beautiful mark of a, of a community empowered by the gospel. Empowered by the gospel. In fact, we want to continue stewarding our church's identity as, uh, as ministers of the gospel to, to all kinds of people. I mean, when the world looks at a group of people like us, they probably look around this room and be like, what are you guys doing here? Like, why, why do you guys meet together? What, what is it that, that actually brings, what, what holds you together? Like, it, it doesn't make sense. And I don't know about you, but the only answer I would be able to give them is, we've all been united to Christ. He is what holds us together. And I wonder, do you realize how incredible that is? Like, it doesn't make sense that it could last. But in Christ, he says, this will be forever. This is your future. This is what God is doing in our midst. Listen, God is gathering all kinds of people to himself. Maybe even people we've been culturally or ethnically conditioned to believe should be excluded. Which means we may need to allow God to tear down some cultural walls we've been taught to build in order for the gospel to have its full effect in our community. We need to be prepared. We, we need to position ourselves. We need to be moving toward welcoming those that Christ gathers up. Those whom Christ brings in should not feel like outsiders in Christ's church. They should be treated like the family of God, just like we're being treated like the family of God. We're learning, remember what we talked about with the, the children of God? Yeah, they should be treated like they get to receive the benefits of family life. Verses 3 through 8 of our passage says this. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and, hold and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. What God is declaring here is that through the finished work of Christ, he inaugurates a new way for us to relate to him 
that makes the old ways obsolete. Those who were once outsiders will now be gathered up because the conditions for fellowship with God are carried out on a new basis. And that basis is Christ himself. So we don't get to decide who God saves. And according to verse 3, we, should, we shouldn't let those who have been joined to God live as though they haven't. That's what verse 3 is talking about. L let me say that again. We should not let those who have been joined to God live as though they haven't. In the new covenant, which we are under today, the prophet Jeremiah says that the Lord will put his law within his people. He will write it on their hearts. In practice, that probably looks something like the eunuchs in verse 4, who keep the Lord's Sabbaths, who choose the things that please God, and who hold fast his covenant. It probably looks like the foreigners in verse 6, who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. They probably have the, the law of Christ written on their hearts. Because we've learned there's, there's no other way you can do that. There's no other way you can live like that. What's significant about the foreigner and the eunuch, which just as, a, as an aside, do we know what eunuch is? I don't, I don't really want to go in too much detail here, but uh, a, a eunuch is, is a, a, a castrated male, okay? That, that, that's, uh, we've got some kids in here, so maybe that's the, the easy, maybe they won't know what that word is. We're tracking, okay, let's move on from there. So the foreigner and the eunuch, right? What's significant about the foreigner and the eunuch is that these were people who under the old covenant were either excluded or experienced limited fellowship with God. Under the old sacrificial system, they were like a blemished lamb. And you can't use a blemished lamb. But Isaiah is telling us that, is that through Christ, a perfect spotless lamb has been sacrificed in their place once for all. The implication of that is that those who were blemished have now been washed clean. The basis is Christ. In other words, not only are we called to enter life under Christ's reign, but as we learn to forsake our former ways of life, we're also called to treat others in a new way. Because Christ's salvation breaks down all kinds of barriers between us and God, and also between us and each other. Who among us has the authority to exclude those Christ welcomes? In Christ, God has chosen to do a new thing. And we must agree that it's wise. It will be effective. We ought to yearn for it. So as a church, we need to be positioning ourselves to receive the fruit of his works. We need to be laboring in this way. Hearts, the question we need to ask ourselves is, who are the people that God is calling us to engage with the gospel here in Kuala Lumpur? 
Who's he calling us to engage with the gospel, to minister the gospel? Is it not those that he's brought both near and far? But as we do this, we must acknowledge the real challenges an international church like us might have. And these challenges are not new. We actually see some of these same problems being worked out in the early church. It wasn't easy for them then, and we still wrestle with these new realities now. For example, consider the apostle Peter. Here's a man who's wrestling through his culturally conditioned background beliefs because of the gospel. Here's one of Peter's background beliefs. Jews don't fellowship with foreigners. But Peter is being changed by the gospel. So in Acts 10.28, Peter says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And then in verse 34, he says, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. What Peter is coming to terms with is what Isaiah prophesied in chapter 56. And so we should be in agreement with Peter when he says in chapter 11 of Acts, If then God gave the same gift to them, them being Gentiles, or foreigners, or fill in the blank. If he gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter says, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And yet in Galatians 2, Paul recounts how Peter denied table fellowship to Gentiles out of social fear and peer pressure. He did this at the church in in Antioch. And so we should acknowledge, like Paul does, that when our actions deny who God accepts in Christ, we've become out of step with the truth of the gospel and risk nullifying the grace of God. Can you imagine that? Claiming citizenship in Christ's kingdom and then acting in a way that hinders his work. So we need to be sensitive to what God is doing in our midst, how he's working in our midst. We need to be working out these relational dynamics, differences in cultures, differences in understanding, differences in maturity, temperament. We're working these things out together by the gospel, for the gospel. It's what holds us together. It's what brought us together in the first place. Our job is to be heralds of the kingdom of God. We preach Christ crucified and Christ risen to all people because we believe it's the power of God to save. Renewal of the heart, that's the will of God. We don't get to to dictate. We don't get to control it. But it is possible for Christians to stand in opposition to it, whether intentionally or unintentionally. But we pray, Lord, may it not be so in this church. May we learn how to flesh out our differences here 
with grace and with charity, with the power of your spirit at work in us, teaching us, guiding us, leading us as we grow together as the church that God has formed here. We had this passage read before the sermon. It's an, it's an incredible moment in the book of Acts. I think it's a, it's a fulfillment of what we're talking about here in Isaiah 56. After the stoning of Stephen, Luke tells us that the church begins to scatter across the regions of Judea and Samaria. Among the scattered is a man named Philip. And after preaching the gospel in Samaria, Philip eventually finds himself with arguably the easiest evangelistic encounter recorded in church history, I would argue. I mean, he's like teed up. You're like, man, God, set that up for me. Like, come on. The angel of the Lord sends Philip to meet with an Ethiopian eunuch who had just visited Jerusalem to worship. And we're told that as the eunuch was heading home, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. We're reading the prophet Isaiah. Great. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. Go over and join this chariot. So Philip runs to the man and he asks him, hey, do you, I heard that you're, you're, you're reading something. Do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, no, I, I need someone to help me. And so he invites Philip into the chariot. And lo and behold, the eunuch is reading from what we now call Isaiah chapter 53, which is about the suffering servant. And it's at this point that Luke tells us, Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now, of course, we don't know for sure what kind of document the eunuch was reading. I mean, it seems unlikely that he was traveling with an entire Isaiah scroll. That would, that would, have, been, that would have been interesting. But, but you, do, you do wonder, what if he at least had access to the ending of the book of Isaiah? I mean, what, what, if, what if Philip had him continue to read, and he got to this section in Isaiah 56? Or you have, I don't know if you heard, made this connection, Ethiopian eunuch. You have a foreigner and a eunuch in one. Someone who is, who is literally just at the temple in Jerusalem. He's there to worship. His experience would have been fresh on his mind. And during his visit, he would have encountered literal boundaries to prevent him from going into the inner courts. I want to put this on the screen for you. You can see that the, 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 these arrows are pointing to the, the court of the Gentiles. That's where this eunuch would have gotten to go to. It's along the, the outskirts of the actual temple building. Like it's right inside the walls, but it's, it's still, it's not much closer. He would have been on the outside. He couldn't go, non-Jews would have been allowed to walk around the court of the Gentiles, but the inner courtyards were forbidden from them. The entrances would have had postings in foreign languages stating that uncircumcised persons were not permitted. An entrance would have been punishable by death. But upon hearing the gospel, 
Philip's talking and hearing the gospel, the eunuch was told that someone else died in his place so that he could enter in. And at the first sight of water, the, the eunuch asked, what prevents me from being baptized? What prevents me from being united with this Jesus? The, the traditional answer would be, well, th there's a lot that is preventing you. But surely Philip would have told him, in Christ, those barriers have been torn down. Under the reign of Jesus, nothing. To anyone here this morning, what prevents you from coming to Christ like this? As a church, we, we must continue to practice the radical inclusivity of the gospel as we live under the reign of Christ. That means preaching Christ to all people, discipling anyone who joyfully receives his salvation, and continuing to pray that we see God's kingdom come here in Kuala Lumpur as it is in heaven. We want others to experience the welcome of Christ. We want them to experience table fellowship in Christ's family. And we do that because he first welcomed us. On what grounds? On the grounds of a dying Savior who overcame sin and death for our sake. Who moved toward us with his compassion and mercy. And who establishes his reign of justice and righteousness in our hearts. May we embody this new community together by the power of God to the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you for the work that you have done in the Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, that you break down walls of hostility. You draw us in. God, many of us, we, all of us, we, we, are, we are saved not by anything that we can do, but only by what you can do. And as we see the beauty of your kingdom advancing in our lives and the lives of others, God, may we be people who, who continue to advance your work, who are excited about your work, who love what you're doing. We pray for it, God. May we yearn for it. And we seek it out here together in this city and beyond. And God, may you be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.